Welcome back to TDR's Dairy Automation Talks. I am Ruben Almada, and we again are graced with another guest today. And our guest today is Paul Peets from Laley, the Milking Technologies Manager. Welcome, Paul. Morning. Well, appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day um, and joining us today to talk a little bit about the Laley Astronaut and how it fits into um, on farms and what is unique about it. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, where you're at, and um, how you got to be into the milking technologies manager at Laley and what sure. that means too, but we'll go throughout that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. There, there's never a straight path, right? There's not many straight lines from where you were to where you're going or where you are. Right. But the background uh, grew up on a small dairy farm told the story many times, 38 cows in a tie stall barn in Southern Wisconsin, where there's currently snow on the ground again, oh. which nobody here's a big fan of at this yeah, well, we're, well, we're, we're not big fans of water right now. We keep getting rained on <laughs> consistently. So feel your pain. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, nobody likes March snow. I've, I've said it before here in Wisconsin, maybe in a lot of the places in the upper Midwest, we think snow should happen about two days before Christmas last about a week after and then we're done right yeah, that's, that's not that. how it generally happens <laughs> no uh but yeah i grew up southern wisconsin small dairy my folks dairy farmed their entire life uh actually live on one of the farms that my dad farmed for his life it was the same farm that my grandfather was born on oh that's cool so haven't moved a tremendous distance from there <laughs> in a residence, but uh, have traveled all over North America and you know did several parlors overseas in my previous employment. So grew up around dairy, went to school for an engineering degree, got out of school, started working in the in the milk and equipment industry. Don't want to tell anybody how long that actually was ago, but we'll just put 30 plus is a as a marker, uh, but have really focused around the the milking technique prior, the last position prior to Laley was very focused on the liner component. So the actual part that's touching the cow. And that really mm -hmm. was, you know, to lead into it, that really was the, the interaction with that manufacturer and some of the things that that manufacturer was doing with Laley that piqued my interest and kind of brought the relationship between where I was and Laley together. Okay. So how long have you been with Laley? So it's funny we're talking today because I think we're almost exactly on the five-year mark. Okay. Uh, I think April 1st was uh, the first day of actual employment with Laley. Okay. So almost five years, well, very close to five years ago exactly now. Well, that's, that's, that's a nice milestone to hit there. Yeah. Um, so congratulations on that. So what is the milking technologies ma manager do? Luckily, you do not have an acronym somehow. I don't understand how you got away without having one because I've, you know, I've talked to FMS now and and then it's just acronyms for lately is, is the thing. So I've joked about a little bit about that on previous pods, but uh, you did, you got away without one. So um yeah, I, th What's I think that's interesting because when, when I started with Lele, to your pain a little bit, Ruben, there, there was this discussion. I, I think I heard maybe it was Amazon or somebody made the discussion point that we can't have acronyms because it takes too long for people to learn. And and when I came to Lele, I thought, hmm, wow, there's a lot <laughs> of acronyms here as to what people do and what that all means. But uh, when my role when I came to Lele, which you know evolves as you go, but really the milking technologies, milking technique focus that they talked about. My employment was a bit interesting or different. My employment is 50% directly to LI okay. and 50% to North America. So supporting anything around milk technique, both in continuous improvement around the robot, how do we make the robot that already exists better? And then new development. So if we do make a new robot in the future, what should we keep our eyes open for as opportunities to continually evolve? Mm -hmm. We believe that continuous improvement process is pretty important. Right. So it, it really comes back to the, the ability and, and what I enjoy most is being 
next to the cow. I enjoy being in the barn. So it, it really provides a lot of value to see, hear, feel what the, the user, which is the cow, but then the people around that event, what they see as value, what they see as opportunity, and then take that back to all the way back to Lely International, LI, and help them see what should be incorporated in what we already have in the market and then what could be incorporated in what we bring to the market in the future. Okay, that explains it pretty well. Pretty well. Um, so in today, it, um, the A5 is what is out there as the new robot that's being, you know, you go buy a new one, it's going to be an A5, the astronaut A5. And so can you tell us a little bit about why the A5 is unique compared to previous versions of the the astronaut and maybe um, some of the competitors that are out there? Sure. So I, I think, you know, it even took me a while to figure out that A5 means fifth generation. I, I, I just... But there's thought, a couple in there, right? There's like an A3 and then there's an A3 next. Well, so see, there, there was no A1, right? Oh, so, well, so I mean, so how does that work? I mean, kind right. of do it. And, and I think the A1 was essentially the first try, right? But the A2 was really the first commercial product that was available into the market. Okay. So then you've got A3, I A3 next, A4, right? Yep. I learned something then. There you didn't go. That, so, I didn't know there was an A1. So, so the, the, the A5 really, for, for, from our perspective, it was really uh, a focus towards, we saw some things in the A4 that was just... a more maintenance than we than we wanted into the machine in the market as far as a, a, a touch point time dollar spend all those things could we reduce some of that cost of ownership while providing additional value as far as functionality so a5 really brought a lot of those things to bear what europe and what holland and what the thought process from them is it's very driven by energy consumption, usage. I think it's so interesting how finely they detail a kilowatt or a usage point towards function of the A5 or function of a robot 24 seven. And it's true, if each one takes a little, a lot of them take more. So can we make that product as efficient as possible? One of the focuses of the A5 was efficiency and deliver it at a reasonable cost point. If we look at the A5 compared to other robots in the market, I always think, are you lucky? Are you smart? Are you both? I'll take either. I had a basketball right. coach once that used to tell me that, hey, lucky is good as long as the score is higher. So mm -hmm. if it works, run it, right? Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Yes. And, and, and if you look at the A5, one of the things that I always focus on is from a milking technique perspective, if we're working on anything, if I'm working on a truck or a tractor or something around the farm, I want the toolbox as close to the work as possible. And when we look at the A5, the MQC2, the milk detection device is located in the mothership. It's down near the teacups. Some would say, hey, it's in harm's way. We would say it's necessary to have the device detecting milk flow as close to the teat as possible to get the most accurate information. Right. Makes sense. We, we've done a lot to make sure it's not in harm's way, and, and it really isn't in harm's way because of the way that mothership's designed, but it needs to be where the work happens to be accurate. When we look at the pulsator, it's also close to the work. And we look at those basic functions of how to milk a cow. We try to make sure that toolbox is as close to the work as possible. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, understanding that the MQC being so close there um, to detect if there's milk flow, it's better than it being in the CU or in the robot um, cabinet there and, you know, milking a cow for that long and there is actually no milk, you're going to end up doing damage to her, right? Eventually, it can cause some teat end issues or just some other issues in you. So getting it as close as possible, I completely agree with that. I hadn't thought about that at all either. Um, but I would agree that that mothership um, does a really good job of protecting its components the way it's built because I have seen it take a beating. 
um, and keep on trucking and, and it does a good job. So they've done an excellent job with designing that. So it can take some, you know, cause cows, the first time they get introduced to that, they tend to be not hundred percent sure about what's this going on kind of deal. Um, and especially young heifers and, and they, they, they like to tell, give their opinion on things uh, with their legs. So, uh, but shortly thereafter, they get very, very comfortable, I think. And, uh, as long as everything else is going well. So that's a very good explanation on the uniqueness of it again. So one of the thing, you know, we were at, we were together at the care conference. Oh, it's been close to a month now. Um, and you had a, a talk in there, I believe actually ended up being two talks. I didn't, I did personally didn't get to make it to the second one, but was the ideal milking. And I feel like that is your soapbox and that you talk, talk about and trying to gather the the crowd to, to, to go behind it. And I, I think everybody should be behind this, the ideal milking. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but we'll also talk about um, in previous podcast, the two previous podcasts with Katie and with Steve, um, they brought up quarter milking. So we didn't go too into detail. I know those uh, quarter milking and ideal milking work together, are, are one, in, one in the same kind of. Kind of. Um, can you explain to us, A, what quarter milking is, and why that is unique and different from what we're used to as an industry and then kind of lead into what I, what the ideal milking concept is. Yeah. I, I think it's a great discussion because one of the things we, as, as I've evolved in my own understanding through the milking side of any machine, any automation, we, we really talk about accuracy. We talk about, Today, we talk about precision agriculture. And as we get more and more focused on this precision agriculture, we, we bring that to every aspect of agriculture. And we look at the cow, the joke always kind of goes, right, that at breakfast, the chicken's involved, but the pig's committed. Right? <laughs> yes. You know, yes. And, and when we look at a cow, what we really see with the, the dairy industry dairy animal is that longevity is king every old cow we can have in the barn that's productive and healthy is a win yes when we look at quarter milking one of the things that the cow really interestingly enough has not evolved from being genetically hardwired to provide milk essentially for the offspring it's making milk for the calf mm -hmm. and if we think about how the brain and and i I am in awe of nature and how nature actually works. If we think about how perfect the system is at core, the cow is making milk for that calf. Oxytocin is involved to make sure that milk is available. Mm -hmm. But what we're really understanding more and more as we go, and we've probably understood quite well for a while, is that cow has a mechanism to allow her to detect completion of harvest. She knows if there's milk in the udder. And if that calf is not removing all of that milk, the brain's function really goes to, I don't need to use as much energy to produce milk. Maybe I should store some fat for the winter. Maybe I should take care of myself more. Calf's primary, but if the calf doesn't need it, I'm going to move on to other things. Right. So when we talk about quarter milking, and one of the reasons as we evolve through this discussion today, as, as we talk about having the detection of that milk flow very close to the teat, it gives us a unique opportunity inside the robot to do something that we probably should have done. And if, if you could see the video behind me, there's a old surge hanging milker that you know I literally grew up with in the mm -hmm. tie stall barn we had. That, that milker has been around for almost a hundred years. And it allowed that ability of each cup to be attached to the cow with a vacuum below it. When we look at this quarter milking, the big discussion has been in this industry, can we have quick, gentle, and complete? Yes. And the, the, the frank answer, the honest answer to that, when we milk an entire cow with a cluster, yeah, we have to pick one. So yep. if we're quick, we might not be complete. If we're gentle, we might not be complete. If we're complete, we might not be gentle. There's this, this balance that we're always trying to do, mm -hmm. but where quarter milking provides us this tremendous opportunity is, it provides us this opportunity 
to complete the harvest to drive the brain stimulus to its maximum to say each quarter was completely harvested, but we can remove the teat cup on the quarter's needs as soon as that quarter is completely harvested and allow the rest of the quarters, maybe there's one, maybe there's two, allow, allow the rest of those to be completely harvested as well and not overmilk any quarter, not undermilk any quarter and drive the maximum stimulus to the brain to say each quarter was empty, there's no teat damage, I can have an old cow in this barn and still have healthy animals. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you think of you going, I grew up on a, a large dairy, you know, two double 24 part pits in there and you go in, it's just four on a time, right? And then they just come off when, when if, you know, the right thing to come out, it's just quick, it's, if it's quick, it's kind of, yeah. Yep. So seeing a, these um, A5s and, and other a, A4s too as well, and um, I saw an A3 as well, as well so, um, but seeing them this, this quarter milking is a uh, was something new for me when I joined TDR, um, and uh, it's it is kind of why haven't we been doing this for the last forty years, right? I mean, we probably because we would see it. You go on farm, you got a cow that's a big like a heavy milker or whatever, and you know that one quarter's a little light. The milker would turn the cup and bend it over. Kind of it adds a little bit of weight to help spit speed up the other quarters a little bit too and that kind of stuff so yeah it, it, it's amazing that it's taken so long to focus on it but um yeah that's so that kind of covers what quarter milking is so tell us what the ideal milking is because that's more than just quarter milking that's the whole experience right absolutely yeah and it, it's it's another discussion that i think is critical around the robot because one of the things that we, we have the opportunity for now is to either allow or deny a milking. So when the cow comes to the robot, we can decide, hey, she's here earlier than we need her to be here. We don't need to do this milking now, or she comes later and we take that milk that she gives us at that time that she visits the robot, right? So we, we, yep. we have all these structures that we can put in place to determine when each individual cow most needs a milking puts the value of the harvest cost because the robot has a cost. Every minute that robot is extracting milk, it has a cost. Yes. And we want to make sure that the cow's needs are met and the robot, its needs for productivity are met as well. So what we really see inside the ideal milking then is, does the cow need the milking? Yes, the cow needs the milking. Now we can start the milking and we can start the milking with some stimulus. I often tell the story that if you look at the brush on the Lely robot, We've got the red and the white brushes. They're in a spiral formation. And, and most of the time you think, well, that's a really nice marketing thing. You guys like red and white. You've got two colors. And then if you stick your finger in there and you, you actually understand the brush, you realize, wait a minute, these two bristles are not the same. Yeah. yeah. Softer, stiffer. So we get a couple of things. If they were all soft and we might not clean as much as we could, if they're all stiff, we might be a little rougher on that soft, fresh heifer teat tissue than we'd like to be. So we put both in there to kind of get the action of both that we want on the teat. But we also get a bit of a pulsing action. And by doing that, we see and we firmly believe we get a little bit better stimulus. And the stimulus is what triggers the start of that ideal milking. Right, for sure. I mean, one of the things that we see and we talk about in the United States is we have USA pre-treat on, right? So the brush goes in and does goes twice for so the, so the people that don't don't understand on the Lely on the Lely robot, the brush will go in and brush the brush each each uh, quarter once default. In the United States, we have we're required to have USA pre-treat on, so we'll go in, brush once each quarter, come back out, put a sanitizer on, run it, and then go back again and um brush again yeah it takes a little bit longer than you would but it i think that is key to the stimulus that you just talked about i think we see um better milk let down because of that i think we see bimodal milkings decrease to a point where basically they don't exist yep. for the most part unless you have an, an issue cow but for overall the whole herd which is key um and you see a cow get more comfortable 
I think because she's that's getting that extra stimulus that she knows that I think that has been key was something interesting that I found was that second brushing to really get that milking going now because that gets us to that you know about 90 seconds that we want to have before attaching a cluster with with that second brushing by the time the cow comes in and does everything um so yeah that that helps get to that ideal milking right and absolutely, absolutely. and so then we see so cow comes in um we can milk her now it's time to attach her and attachments are also important during that ideal milking because we want to attach as much as fast and as gentle and as and clean as possible and as little attachment as possible because we we want to get that done quickly but efficiently right so what are um when it comes to the attachment side of things how does it it, it starts with attaching in the rear and then comes to the front and and um so then it's since this flow of milk to help with that and then how does all that the attachments connection attempts failures how does that all tie into that ideal milking because how do we get to that ideal milking with all those kind of things because i feel like all that stuff is part of that maybe oh, i'm wrong yeah well it, it is i mean everything everything the cow sees feels touches smells right cows have a tremendous uh regularity need they want things to be consistent they want things to be the same every day i i've often said really good dairy farming is really boring if it's really good it's the same thing over and over and over and over and that that's that's really the goal most most of us i don't most of us don't like the exact same repetitive action over and over and over cows love it yeah that's why tie stalls worked really well, right? Exactly. Because they were tied in that same spot for, and you just fed them. And I, I make that comparison all the time is people were like, okay, I'm a cows love consistency. If I tie her to this wall right here, as long as I feed her and I milk her and I give her water, she's going to be as happy as can be because she knows that that wall is always there. Hey, I grew up on a 38 cow tie stall barn. And I'll tell you what, if, if you brought those cows in at night and tried to tie them up in that that tie stall or that stanchion and that wasn't hers oh. you put somebody in the wrong spot you got problems right yeah and yeah, yeah all of those things lead you to this understanding of when we get through this sequence when we get through this brushing sequence to drive the stimulus and one of the best things that a person or a, a, an operator can do with a cow oftentimes is wait Oxytocin takes some time. The blood flow takes some time. So we have to start the stimulus. You spoke to it quite well about the USA pretreatment, that the benefit of USA pretreatment is we go from dirty to clean. We go from touching the cow with a brush that we know we're going to clean again before we get the final clean. So we get that sanitization in between. But we also get that first touch, that tactile stimulus to the cow and some lag time, some time for that blood flow to take place, get the oxytocin where we need it, get that milk that is at this moment alveolar milk, not cisternal, not machine harvestable milk, into the cistern, get it available for the machine harvest to take place. But when we talk about attachment, it's we, we often, I hear this conversation about robot ready cows or, or what's the perfect robot cow. And I, I find that such an interesting discussion in that the perfect robot cow is the perfect parlor cow. And what's interesting is I, I've, I've, I worked for a manufacturer years ago that worked with primarily large dairies. And we built the dairy, I will always remember it, we built a dairy in Florida, Northern Florida. And instead of building the big, like what you were used to at home, the double 24 parlor, we built three double eights. And the reason for the three double eights was a slow cow can only hold up seven. Interesting. And a double 24 holds up 23. Okay. So when we talk about this milk speed thing and people talk about robot efficiencies and milk speeds, what I find interesting is in the robot, she's only holding up herself. Yeah. In the parlor, she's holding up everybody else. Yeah. So who really needs a fast milking cow? Yeah, the maybe the parlor needs it more than the robot right yeah so 
what we look at then when we talk about this attachment process, we, we talk about attaching accurately, quickly, and consistently and getting that attachment to be consistent every time for that cow. That cow that attaches well, and we talk about balanced udders and teat spacing and all these things, that also helps that person on the front of the rotary complete that task in five to seven seconds like we asked them to today. So what we're talking about, about cows for robots is really we're talking about cows for milking facilities. How do we make the most use of that cow in the milking facility? And does she earn her spot? But when we look at the attachment from the robot, one of the things I see over and over and over again is the software and the adaptation that is continued to improve, especially now with the A5, but through all the evolution of the robots, the ability of that robot to attach to a cow is amazing. It is. It is. It's to sit there and watch. If you, if those out there haven't listened, you haven't watched an A5 attach, you can, you can YouTube and see it too. But if you haven't farms in your area, go and see if you can talk to them about watching it. The, the quickness that it actually does attach right after it scans and it scans very quickly. Um, it is, is impressive. It's impressive. Yeah, I, I often tell technicians when we talk to them about milking technique and, and this process that if you have the moment and, and, and we require it after a scheduled service that you have to watch a cow be milked just yeah. to make sure that all the details were covered, the process is still happening, you didn't miss something in human nature, right? Yep. You miss something from time to time. But let, let's, let's watch that cow milk. And what I try to bring to their attention is I, I equated a little bit with a moonshot and we always joke that, Hey, we only landed on the moon in California in a, you know, in a studio someplace that didn't really happen. Right. But <laughs> the, the interesting part about that is flying in a plane, landed on the moon. We all kind of take those as normal. Like that happens. Yeah. Ah, what's special about it. And what we've kind of evolved to in our part of the world with this robotic milking thing is attachment of course we attach. Why wouldn't we? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's still amazing to see what the robot actually can attach. We see some of these rear teeth placements that are literally touching. Yes. And we it's still impressive. attach. Yes. So, so that, that, that attachment, the better the cow, the better the attachment, the more calm the cow, the better the attachment. The, the goal really is 1.0 when we talk about connection performance, and that is how many times do we try to get a teat cup on a teat and how many times do we actually get the teat cup on the teat? We'd like that to be one try, one attachment. We see time and time again where we've evolved that number to closer to 1.0. I don't know that we're going to get to 1.0, but we're awful close. Yeah, and there, you know, I was... Um... I think it was last year at the care conference we talked about the connection attempts and talking about going from a 1.3 to a 1.2 it doesn't seem like it's a big number but it actually is a very big number a big difference um you know so i think they gave out an award last uh, at the care conference this year for a farm having i think it was 1.0 something uh, connection attempts. I don't remember exactly. So that's that's an attestment to the, the cows there on the, on the farm and the management on the farm of taking care of that that robot to make sure that it is connect. It's clean and its it, lasers are clean and everything chains and and ropes are all in good shape kind of deal. So that it can connect connect quick. Well, okay. So we're we've attached now. Now we go through and we have. The milking the actual milking process and that's where quarter milking kind of comes in here because we have quarter milking so then we also have within quarter milking we can change pulsation for each, for the specific quarters we can change pulsation and vacuum for for um the the group and we can do so how does that that also plays effect obviously in an ideal milking because if those settings aren't correct she's not going to have a comfortable milking and at the end of the day the ideal milking, the goal with the ideal milking is to have a, you know, like you said, quick, comfortable, and complete so that she comes back. Mm -hmm. We want her to come back because if she doesn't come back, she becomes 
does not become pro she becomes less profitable each time that she doesn't come back okay. and therefore the efficiencies on the robot drop and all those numbers that we all look at start to decrease so tell us a little bit about that the, the pulsation being by quarter and all that i know we talked a little bit about that with the quarter milking but how we can because we can customize that stuff correct you bet so so we can customize some we continue to be available the idea to customize more and right. as as we get more data I, I i think what is never ending in interest to me is the data that's generated from the robot not right. only on the specific farm we're working on but on farms all around the world that we can use to see is there an advantage is there an opportunity is there a continuous improvement point that can drive this ideal milking to a better spot Mm -hmm. and, and when we really think about ideal milking, what we're really trying to end up with is this perfect, what we call square milk flow profile. Meaning when the teat cup goes on, we quickly rise to the near peak flow rate. We stay at a sustained very high flow rate for the entirety of the teat cup attachment. When we see those nice, comfortable milkings, the cow is fully participating in the event, meaning the oxytocin is released, the liner fits well, the vacuum and the pulsation are incorporated to work with that animal and that teat. We see that milk flow get to a point where it almost falls off a cliff. It, it comes at a very high rate and then she's done and yep. she ends. Now the determination of the end of milking is quite easy actually, but because back to that toolbox discussion, because the toolbox is located next to the work and the MQC2 is right there by the teat cup. Mm -hmm. We trigger that almost instantaneously and we end that milking on that teat's needs at that milking event. We also, I think, really do some things to help in what we call dynamic takeoff, meaning we actually trigger the takeoff level by her flow rate on that quarter. So we're looking at each quarter and saying, how is she expressing milk at this moment? Let's trigger a percentage of that flow rate and we'll use that as our trigger for removing the teacup. So we don't have to say, we expect the cow to milk like this today and take it off and maybe not finish or maybe over milk. We right. get to look at each cow and her needs at that moment. So that's where the, the pulsation being close, the pulsation being set for uh, the groups or groups, we tend to see pulsation set relatively similar because the data isn't quick enough to make much of a change. We have to kind of yeah. guess what that's going to be. We see some opportunities here and there for some milk vacuum adjustment in some groups or some cows and some animals. Not a lot of that, but some of that. But it all comes back to this ability. And one of the things through the data stream that we have today, especially in the A5s, a4s have it as well, but this ability to see every milk flow profile as a resource to say, are we milking cows the way we expect to milk cows on a quarter level to get the ideal milking on what we believe should be every quarter, every quarter of every cow in every robot. Now, will we ever get to 100%, Ruben? Yeah. <laughs> eh, we're going to keep trying. We'll try, keep trying. And then, so we're, then we have the takeout. You talked about the dynamic takeoff and stuff. There's options there. We can quickly take off. We can do custom takeoffs. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong here, though, but you're a big proponent of custom takeoffs. Absolutely. And, and so talk to us a little bit about what that means, the custom so takeoff. Custom takeoff. Yeah, custom takeoff allows us to adjust that takeoff dynamic number, so a percentage of her flow rate, uh, however often. If you wanted to set up a group for one cow, you can do that. Yeah. If you want to set up a group for the whole barn, you can do that. But that allows us to, to maximize or maybe minimize is the better number, amount of time that a possible overmilking could happen. And that really comes down to this ideal milking discussion around gentle. Mm -hmm. You talked about it a little bit before that, that we want the cow to be comfortable. Gentle milking is a, is a really quick way to get to as comfortable as possible. I always encourage people, if you've ever had the opportunity to visit a robot barn, if they will let you, and farmers are great to farmers. I, I think most farm people back and forth between themselves, 
are I'm always amazed how much they will share because oh, yeah. they are trying to go into the same market and sell the same product. But the, the universally, I've seen just the ability to converse about challenges and opportunities to be quite interesting. But if you get a chance to get in the barn next to the cow, after that robot's been in place for a while and the cows have acclimated to the system, if you don't notice the difference in the calmness of the cows in the pens and in the barns, you're not paying attention. I, I agree. We, you know, that was brought up on a previous podcast, I believe with Katie too, that, you know, um, you, you can walk into a, a robot pen and the cows will all come up to you for, you know, not, I mean, a good chunk of them will come up to you to kind of say, hi, what are you doing here? Versus you go into a conventional barn. If you're walking in that pen, they're usually all getting up and walking away from you because they think yeah. they're getting herded to go somewhere or, or, you know, you're coming in to do some work or something like that. So yeah, it, it is very unique in that aspect. I, I work with a large Jersey operation and yes, jerseys are curious before anyways, but even, but now you go in there, um, you better not wear anything that you want to keep clean because they are going to try to eat your jacket at any possible time. It is, there's just this calmness about, about a robot pen that is, it's unique and it's, it's actually really enjoyable to watch and the way they just kind of sit there and wait and kind of like you, they just come up to you to kind of say hi, how's it going, kind of deal. So, definitely agree with that. Um, so then, you know, that's we've done a we've covered a lot on the ideal milking and and quarter milking in the A five, and, and I think we've hit a lot of really good points. I think the biggest understanding there is talking about how we can do that, like we talked at the beginning, doing it consistent is what is going to be the best thing for the cow, and then at the end, be the best thing for the farm. Cause we want her to want to come back to get milked and have her goodies and, and such. But if, because if she has a bad experience in there, she's not going to come back. Uh, she's so that, that kind of leads into the free flow aspect of things because we're letting them do it with, with the, when they want from aspect. Can you, can you explain a little bit about what free flow is and how that kind of all that, cause that plays into this too, right? Cause we're letting her as she, we want her to be comfortable so she can come back versus in a conventional farm. She doesn't really have a choice to come back. We go get her twice a day or three times a day to come in to get milk. So you touch a little bit about what free flow is and what, why that is important for these setups. Yeah. And I think it's at a core, it's, 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 it's kind of at a core of what we believe and when you look at free flow, what we're really believing in, what I believe in, is the the barn is an automated milking facility, meaning it requires minimal labor. Yep. And the automation is going to take care of most, if not all, of the labor needs for that animal. We see opportunities, obviously, you've seen other equipment. We see opportunities for automated feeding. We see opportunities for automated alley cleaning. We see all these opportunities towards allowing the cow to fully express her genetic potential and her individual needs on individual days. When we look at free flow, what we're talking about is allowing the cow to freely flow to the robot on her need, her want, her time. That free flow requires no impediments and impediments obviously when we think about impediments we think about hills gates walls alleys all those things impediments can also mean fear intimidation other things that could happen with an uncomfortable milking event so mm -hmm. we, we we primarily understand got to be comfortable got to be complete we focus on that and then we allow the cow to freely flow about the barn. And we we see opportunities around free time so that the cow can see into the robot. One of the challenges we see with all these discussions is, you know, we, we understand it. There's an economic driver around everything on farms, around everything in business. We have to maximize the economic potential. But one of the things around free flow is there has to be access. And when we look at access tables, we look at free time to the robot, we have to make sure, and one of the reasons I think that at times people question the free flow concept is if we get into a situation where free flow 
is not working, we often see an access issue. We often see uh, maybe there's not quite enough free time. Maybe there's not enough room around the robot. And one of the illustrations that I use more and more as we go is if you just think about that student driver trying to get on the four lane interstate, that student driver is not taking a 30 foot gap. No. It's waiting for a half mile between the trucks. Yes. And when you think about that heifer trying to find her way into that robot, she's a student driver. If we take that third lactation animal, again, we go back to good old cows are just good old cows. They're going to find their way in that robot because they know they need to get in there. Yep. They know that's normal. They know that if there's somebody standing in the way, they're still yeah, going to find sure. their way. Yeah. That, yeah. So, so when we think about these designs and we think about adapting to free flow, yeah, maybe we need a little more room around that robot. But the reason we need that room is for the cow. Yes. And if we put this cow at the center of all of our thoughts and we think around away from out from the cow, all these ideas kind of come to a, a happy spot where they all make a lot of sense. And where the, the biggest challenge that I see, and as we look forward, the biggest challenge I see oftentimes with this is we start thinking more about how do we move cows to the robot? How do we make this more efficient labor-wise? How do we do these things? And, and one of the things, my son works on a large farm here in Wisconsin, and we were talking about this the other day. I said, my natural state being around non-automated, well, non-robotic systems for many years is if I want to move a cow to the foot bath, if I want to move a cow to the hoof trimmer, if I want to move a cow to the, the preg check lane, if I want to get them someplace, I'm going to use a gate. That's how I, as a person who's been around cattle, is going to move an animal to where I need that animal to be. Mm -hmm. And that's for me. That's for my efficiency. But when we look at the efficiency of the cow, maybe allowing her to do it, determining what she saw as an opportunity or an, an impediment, you know, thinking through the cow's eyes gets us to this realization that free flow does work and it works really well for the cows we allow to participate in it. I think you made a very good point there when comparing the, you know, the cow, the people. I, I, I like to talk about one of the things I like to say is that, and I, I got this, I don't remember, I got it last year, a, year, a couple of years ago from, someone talking about the robotic thing when we start talking about robotic milking and automated milking systems we start carrying we start thinking about the four-legged animal on the farm instead of the two-legged animal on the farm and and what what i mean is not that we didn't care about the four-legged before is if we start thinking through like you said through their eyes and how do we put our schedule around their schedule versus their schedule around our schedule um so we do things around their time and, and such with an automated system versus, okay, everybody's getting locked up for preg check today. Everybody's getting locked up to get bread today. Okay. We're going to versus, okay, we only need these 20. So we're going to pull them over here. They're going to be, you know, when they come milk, we're going to pull them over here though. So they're still part of the herd. We don't have to lock up the other hundred that are over here and, and cause issues. So I think that's a great point when you talk about this free flow and just in automated systems, uh, as a as a whole is thinking more about the four-legged animal on the farm versus the two-legged animal on the farm uh -huh. um and allowing them to do what they they do best right and so i think you the next question i had here you already kind of hit on it you know talking about the biggest challenge in milking cows in automated systems what i had next and and you you just kind of talked about is making sure that you're designing your facility to fit the needs of the cow to make it work and not think so closed-minded about being oh let's just squeeze as much space you know into as little space as possible because that is going to kind of cause it'll eventually cause some issues right it will just take you know i know it takes money to to make the space bigger because of concrete and all that kind of those things aren't cheap but it will pay off in the, in, the, in the end because you'll have a, a a, an automated system that is working to its best ability. Um, so, you know, we're coming to the end here. We've been going for about 45 minutes already. Um, my last question I have for you, where do you see the future of automated milking going? We're starting to see larger dairies do, do automated milking. Yeah. It's mainly what we see out here in California um, right now. 
because we don't have very small farms. But um, but where do you see this going? You're starting, you know, there's some uh, some rotaries out there that are looking people are looking at, at the automation on that. And we still have the, we have our box systems that we have we have, and, and but where do you see this going? Do you you know I'm I take it back to a couple of weeks ago we were at the care conference and you talked about how do we switch from conventional being called conventional to robotic milking being called the conventional way? Yeah, it, it's it's hard not to to say that sentence over and over and over, right? Because that that's uh, you know I when I got out of school out of college you know late '80s. Uh, Went to work for Germania not long after that, right? Mm -hmm. So covered all of North America in a technical support role. And, you know, at that time, a 500 cow dairy was a good sized dairy. There, was, there wasn't a whole lot of 500 cow or larger dairies in, in most of the country. And today it's, you know what's happened in California. That's happened all across the rest of the, the globe. We see this size continuing to grow. And I, I hear this discussion around, you know, what's the future of automated milking? Where are we going? Uh, I do believe, don't know what that time frame is, getting closer and closer to the end of my career in this industry. But I think that time frame's not that far away when we will call robotic milking conventional and we'll call the other manual because it requires a man to do the work, right? Or a, or right. a woman or a person. A person, yeah. And, and when I see this automation process and I, and I look at things and I, I've got a, a boy, I've got four sons and one son's got a, a seed dealership selling seeds and selling corn and soybeans. And when we see these high speed 36 row corn planters and we see the precision with which they can place seed and we can see variable hybrids and we can see variable rates and we can see all these things happening while the person's not even actually driving the tractor, it's still guided from the satellite. And the yeah. accuracy, we used to joke about, my dad used to joke about how a straight row of corn, right? This guy could plant and that guy couldn't. And it's now to the point where when you see a really straight row of corn, you know, nobody was driving. <laughs> yeah, right. So it, it, it's, <laughs> if it's a little bit crooked, you know, at least somebody was driving. Yes. But if we look at this automated milking process and all of precision agriculture, it doesn't take someone that's really deeply involved to believe or understand that precision is where it's at. The ability to find the data point, act on the data point and resolve the issue at a fine detailed point, again, back to every quarter of every cow and every astronaut, to see each individual milk flow meet each individual cow, it's not possible in a parlor. No. It's just not possible. So when we talk about the, the future of automated dairying, it, it really comes down to the adaptation of what I often call the play. So how do we get the barn to run, as we talked about, having plenty of access to get to the robot? How do we get the barn to run uninterrupted? How do we get sand? How do we get bedding in the stall? How do we get manure out of the barn? How do we get all the things that touches that have to happen in the pen with no disruption or very limited disruption so that free flow can work to its perfection. And then how do we use that data somewhat manually digested today? So we give some data, some information to a manager where the manager can make some decisions. And then how do we continue that process to say, let's just write an algorithm to get that decision to be made at the robot, at the machine in real time so that the manager now just manages the exceptions to an even higher degree than they do today. Yes. So I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but the excitement is real about where that is and where it's going. And when I hear this discussion around, yeah, but maybe it doesn't work for a big dairy. Oh, I come back to, if you're milking the cows, meaning that pen did something today, Maybe you need to keep thinking if you're milking the cow and there's a bunch of them in that pen. Now we have an opportunity because we realize every cost, every cow has a cost. She's got intakes. She's got minimum needs. She's got space requirements. If we can add value to every one of those cows, guess what happens? That's just a multiplier. Right. So 
now we, we get to multiply by a hundred cows on one farm or a thousand or thousands on another farm. It's just a math problem. I think it works even better. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, I think we're proving it out here out West, you know, by the, I don't know, and in, in, within a year of, from today, I would say we're going to be, um, we'll be at five farms in, in California for, for our Laley center. Um, and two of them are about three hours away. So I don't, I don't visit them as much and they're a little bit small, smaller and, uh, good farms. Um, they're just a little bit out of the way, but the three that are going to be within a half an hour of where our Laley center is, those three will come up to 77 robots. So, you know, I talked to other Laley center FMSs around and they're, you know, they're running 77 robots or 75 robots on 15 farms. So we're pro we're proving that you can do it on large herds out here. Um, there's another one that's south of us that's a different Laley Center that's 24, right? So it, I think it's going to be very common for our dairies out here to be around 20 to 30-ish robots. Um, it, you know, they might not do them all at once. You know, they might be a phase deal, you know, 10 here, then 12 here or something like that. But I think that's going to be very common and it's going to really... I think that'll really push the the automated milking for the large farms faster. Oh yeah, and it I just agree. takes it takes a couple guys to do it, and we've got a few that are doing it out here, and we appreciate them all. And it that's what's kind of just becomes a snowball effect, right? So, um, Paul, I, I want to thank you again for a, an hour of your time today. It was really good getting to talk to you and, and learn a little bit about yourself and and learn a lot about the ideal milking and um where how the about the a5 and all the things that we need to take into consideration when we're going with a robotic milking system so once again thank you very much for your time most welcome and for tdr's dairy automation talks i am ruben almada and have a nice day